Well, if you have your Bible, open it up to John chapter 10. Glad to see a couple of our sick folks in church this evening. Kenneth, we, uh, I prayed for you this afternoon. I'm, I'm sure others did too. I told them all that you were sick and not in the deer stand. Uh, and then glad to see Ethan here tonight. And uh, glad he's feeling better. At least well enough to come to church. And John, I, I say John chapter 10, I meant John chapter 11. We left off. Uh, finishing up John chapter 10 last week. And at the end of that chapter, Jesus is leaving Jerusalem. He's leaving Judea, this, this area. Uh, remember, they were picking up rocks and getting ready to stone him. And, uh, and so he left and he went across. It says that he goes beyond the Jordan there in verse 40 of chapter 10 and began uh, to minister in a place that John the Baptist had been. Now, some of the commentaries... Uh, say that the name of the area that he went to was Perea. That actually is a Greek word that just means beyond. I don't know if that was actually the name of the area or um, it's just the Greek word that means beyond because he went beyond the Jordan. Of course, uh, if you think about to your Old Testament history, uh, that territory on the east side of the Jordan was part of Israel's inheritance from God as well. Those were the uh, tribes of Gad and Reuben, and I can't remember, that's maybe it, Gad and Reuben that had that land on the east side of the Jordan. And what the scripture tells us is, is that in the midst of his trial, Jesus goes across the Jordan, he begins ministering in that place. Long story short, it says that many believed in him. Um, and they believed because they had heard John's testimony. That's what it says. Uh, all things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. Now, John, the, the Baptist, didn't know that much about Jesus. In fact, there was, there was at one point in the Gospels where John sent some of his disciples to Jesus and literally asked the question, should we expect someone else to come? Uh, in other words, John the Baptist was kind of growing tired of what was going on. But nevertheless, he testified about what he knew about Jesus Christ. And because of his witness, sometime later, there were some who believed. They believed after John the Baptist was beheaded. They believed uh, post-mortem. And so uh, I, I kind of had this funny thought as I was preparing this. Is, is, uh, was John the Baptist in heaven during the celebration of these people coming to believe? You know, because it says that when one sinner repents and comes to Christ, there's a big party in heaven, right? So was John the Baptist in heaven for that party and getting to rejoice and thinking about, well, gosh, these people believed in Christ, and that's partially because God used me to share in the testimony of what I knew. Now, just, you know, we never know the impact of the witness that we might have. Uh, in the end, their conversion wasn't because just because of John the Baptist. It was because of Jesus Christ. But there was a part of their belief that was dependent upon the, the witness and the testimony of John the Baptist. But it was also dependent on God and His timing and God's purpose. And the story we are going to read tonight in John chapter 11 has to do with God's timing and God's purpose. You see, we just never know what God's timing and God's purpose, God's will, looks like. In fact, we may not know this side of heaven, what God's purpose, what God's timing, what God's will is for situations, for trials, for our life, 
what it is that we go through. Here's a question we might be tempted to ask. If God can do something and He knows something needs to be done, why doesn't He do it right then, right there? In the case of this story, Lazarus is sick. Jesus knows that he is sick. And in fact, the scripture tells us that he knows that the sickness is going to end with Lazarus's physical death. And I think because of this, there are many statements we can make, regard, make regarding Jesus and how he relates to the trials that humanity goes through. What that says to us about understanding even though we don't understand completely His will, His purposes for our lives. I want to read this entire chapter. It's long. It's 57 verses. Bear with me. Let's read it together. You don't have to read it out loud. I'll read it. Starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, verse 9, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not on him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Verse 17, So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary, Mary, uh, Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Verse 28. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. 
As soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary, Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38. Then Jesus, then Jesus again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that, you, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Verse 45, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on they plotted to put him to death. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Verse 57, Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. I know you have probably heard this scripture preached like I have a number of times uh, if you've spent time in the church. Um, I grew up in the church and I cannot count how many times I've heard this story preached. And I tell you, I like every single one of the sermons I've heard. No doubt you have heard something about the professional weepers and mourners that had been hired to be there at the grave with the family. And that's these Jews that were there mourning and weeping and following Mary and Martha all over the place. No doubt you have probably heard some uh, pastor talk about the wrappings that would have been on Lazarus and, and perhaps the 
similarities between the tomb that Lazarus is, is in and, the, and, and the, the tomb that Jesus would soon be in. And so I don't want to repeat something perhaps that you've already heard in a message. And so I try to approach this chapter maybe a little bit differently and talk about seeking or seeing God's will and purposes in our life through the trial that is going on at this point in time. And there's three things that this trial, the trial of Lazarus's sickness and his death, we can say about God and how he relates to humanity. The first thing that this trial of Lazarus's sickness and death says about God and how he relates to humanity is this. His love for us does not exclude us from the trials of life. We could probably all agree with that. We probably all in the back of our mind already knew that, that the trials that I'm going through doesn't really uh, talk about, I mean, it doesn't tell me that much about God's love, um, but His saving me through the trials tells me a lot about His love. We know that Jesus loves this family. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Sometimes commentaries and media and movies, they try to make something out of the relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, trying to make something romantical there. That, you know, we have such a cheap view of love. Humanity does. John tells us here in chapter 11, verse 2, that this is the same Mary that had anointed Jesus with the perfume. Now, in history timeline-wise, this doesn't actually happen until chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. But John is inserting it right here in chapter 11 because he's trying to tell us a little something about the affectionate relationship between Jesus and this family. Not just Jesus and Mary, but Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Verse 3, he actually tells us that Jesus loved this family. Um, Bear with me. So, this, uh, then why does John mention here completely out of the timeline, again, to show the love, the affection this ha- family had for Jesus and that Jesus had for this family? Of course, we know about the love Jesus had for them because John tells us, sorry, verse 5, that's where he says it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And in case you're wondering, that Greek word for love is the unconditional, God-based, agape perfect love. Jesus had that kind of love for this family. I think it is also a demonstration of his love for this family when Jesus tries to comfort Martha. In verse 23, he tells her, your brother will rise again. He sees that she has been mourning and weeping and, and, and she is very broken hearted over the fact that, uh, uh, she, that her brother has passed away. And so he says to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 35, we Read that most famous of verses, right? Everybody memorized this verse when they were a child. Do you have any verses memorized? Yes, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Why does Jesus weep? Listen, I, you've probably heard a, a, a whole lot of good sermons about the reasoning behind why Jesus weeps here. Everything that uh, he was he was weeping because of the lack of the faith of the Jews. Perhaps he was weeping because of the lack of the faith of Mary and Martha. Maybe he was weeping because of uh, the, the, the lack of faith and understanding in his disciples. Some commentaries state that he may have been weeping because he knew this was one of his last times 
with the people of Jerusalem before that triumphal entry in that week leading up to his death. Maybe he was weeping because the Jewish people had rejected him. They knew who he was, but the Jewish leaders just willfully were uh, unbelieving towards him. There, there could be a number of reasons. I choose to believe that Jesus, though, was weeping because he was mourning with those who mourn. It's very godly, very biblical for us to mourn with those who mourn. Even if in our mind and our heart we know, you know, they really don't have, I mean, this is not something they really should be mournful over. They shouldn't really be weeping over. I mean, Jesus, of all, would know. They really shouldn't be weeping over this because I'm about to bring this guy out of the grave. But it is very godly for us to weep and to mourn with those who mourn. And this is a sign of affection, isn't it? To mourn and to weep and to, to sympathize and empathize with those who are hurting. God's love for us does not preclude us from trials, troubles, and even death. Death in our lives and the lives of our loved ones is a part of life. We may want God to take of us and never want us to be harmed. We may wonder like the Jews do in verse 37. What did they say? Could this man, I mean verse 35, bear with me, I'm, I'm just quoting all the wrong verses tonight. Verse 37, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Yes, he could have, but he doesn't. Does that mean he doesn't love them? No. It has nothing to do with his love for the people. There's something else going on. We need to be certain of something about God's love. We should never interpret His love through our trials, but we should always interpret our trials through His love. You get that? So the trials I'm going through say nothing about His love for me, but His love for me says much about the trials that I'm going through. God loves us even if it feels like he's abandoned us. He hasn't. He hasn't. But it may feel that way. The second thing we can say about God from this story, about God in the, the midst of our trials and our heartache, about his will and his purposes, is this. The purpose of our trials fit into his purposes. Period. The purpose of our trials fit into his purposes, his will, all, all of that. It, and it fits neatly. It's, it's not like we're trying to, to push a square peg into a round hole. We may be confused about what we're going through, but make no mistake, he is not. And all of it fits neatly into his purposes. Was the purpose of Lazarus' sickness and death so that Mary and Martha would learn who Jesus was? Yes. Was it also so that Jesus could glorify God the Father by showing His power? Yes. Was it so the disciples could learn more about Jesus' identity and their faith would grow? Yes. Was it to usher in the timing of the Jews' conspiracy to kill Jesus Christ? Yes. Did all of this work ultimately propel God's plan for Jesus to pay for the sins of all of humanity? Yes. To use a word I use quite frequently, this story is all about the sovereignty of God. His 
domain and His dominion and His power over all things. At first glance, we might think the story is all about teaching the disciples and teaching Mary and Martha, but it also serves all of the other purposes I mentioned. It is so much more broader than just teaching a handful of people. Verse 4, the purpose of glorifying God through the display of power of resurrection. And it's later confirmed in verses 43 through 44, or actually before that, when, when Jesus actually prays this prayer. You know what, God? I, I, you and I, we've been connected, but I'm just saying these things and I'm praying these things so these people will see how close we are connected. And God, I'm ready to bring you glory. Let's raise this guy out of the grave. And then what, is, what happens? That stumbling man comes out wrapped in swaddling clothes, right? Comes out of that, that tomb. Lazarus is raised out of the grave. So boom, it serves God's purpose of bringing glory to himself and showing this power. The power he has over physical death, by the way. A foreshadowing of something that is going to soon be coming in the life of Jesus. Verse 15, the disciples... Does it, does it serve the purpose of helping the disciples understand Jesus' identity? Yes. Verse 15, the disciples, they still do not understand the extent of Jesus' power and His true identity. When you read that in verse 15, He says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. He's not saying necessarily, I'm glad that Lazarus is dead, though that's what He's saying. Because, because, Jesus, uh, because Lazarus is dead... Because I wasn't there, you guys are about to find something out. Disciples are about to, to, to learn something more about Christ and His identity. He is glad that the disciples will be shown something that will cause deeper devotion and faith in Jesus Christ. And ultimately what it will do, will, it will broaden the gap between belief and unbelief. The disciples will be even more so divided over who do we say this guy is. And this is where we start to see Judas veer away from the disciples. In verse 45, after Lazarus is raised, though it says that many Jews, many Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. And I gotta wonder if perhaps some of the disciples were these Jews that John references in verse 45. Does the purpose of this trial of Lazarus' death, does it serve the purpose of teaching Mary and Martha who Jesus was? Absolutely. In verses 19 through verse 32, we've already read that. Mary and Martha, they confirm their belief in Jesus as being able to heal the sick. The, the first thing they say to him when he shows up on the scene, separately, by the way, Martha says it to him and then Mary says it to him, they said, Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus would have never died. But what Jesus wants to show them is something deeper than physical life and physical death. He wants to show them that life in Him is better than just having physical life on earth. This is why when Martha thinks Jesus' promise of Lazarus' resurrection is a promise about the great final resurrection, Jesus takes that opportunity to teach her where real life is. He says, it's not here on earth. This is not real life. This is not real living. But as Jesus teaches Martha, whoever believes in me will have life, though he may die. Though he may die, he shall live, right? Real life is not found in living in the flesh, but it is found in living in Christ, in belief in Christ. 
And then, of course, that purpose. Does this help to usher in, or does this serve the purpose of ushering in this final moment, if you will, of Jesus' life where the conspiracies begin to bring Christ to death? And while the Pharisees and the religious leaders think that they are doing something, and, and while this, by the way, serves as the straw, if you will, to break the camel's back, it wasn't that Jesus did anything wrong, by the way. Healing or bringing uh, Lazarus back from the dead wasn't a breaking of any of the Jewish laws, but simply put, the Jewish leaders could no longer refute the identity of Jesus. Did you hear what their concern was? The chief priests, verse 47, and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. Verse 48, If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. They're concerned about their place. They're concerned about what status they had. When the place and power of ungodly people is threatened, they will stop at nothing to make sure that place is made secure. And what they did not know, however, what none of them could know without listening to the Holy Spirit, without really knowing what the scriptures were talking about, was they were playing right into the hands of God's will as foreshadowed by prophetic scripture. They didn't realize it, but this is exactly what God had ordained. Does it serve the purpose of beginning this this uh, process of Christ going to the cross? Absolutely it does. And this is the beauty of God and His sovereign will. Our every moment, our trials, our ups and downs, all fit within His purpose for our lives. But on a bigger scale, they fit within His purposes. And often there are so many moving cogs and details and part of the machine of His grand scheme, His purposes, that we know nothing about. God was in the sickness and the death of Lazarus for all of these purposes and his bigger, greater, grander purpose overall. Which makes me stop and wonder about this. When Lazarus came back to life, do you think he went up to Jesus and say, really, did you have to kill me for all this to happen? I mean, did I really have to be buried in the grave for four days, Jesus? No, I don't. I don't think so. I would imagine Lazarus was humble to be a part of, of God's grand purpose. I, actually, I, I think thinking about that, I, I would be humbled. Wouldn't you be humbled to know that God had used your life and your death and then brought you back to life for so many purposes? I do. But it's kind of funny to think about, did you really have to kill me, God? <laughs> and we have two choices. What? And bring me back to life. Well, yeah, right? Well, did you really have to bring me? I was enjoying heaven. That's right. And we have two choices. We can either accept His will and pray to be a part of that bigger purpose, or we can reject it. And in the story of Christ, there are those who accept it, though they may not understand it. And God shows great patience and enduring love with those who believe, though they may not understand it. That's okay. He does not, however, endure those who willingly know and reject who he is, and what he has come to do. Our purposes really fit more inside God's purposes. We're such a tiny speck of the details of God's grand scheme 
of all of eternity. Isn't that amazing? We're, we're just a little blip on the radar, if you will, of God's greater scheme of things, His greater purposes. Finally, our trials tell us a little something about His will. I want you to look. There's a peculiar set of verses. We, we read over them, verses 7 through 10, and really it's the last part of verse 7 when Jesus makes this proclamation. He says to His disciples, verse 7, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples are generally concerned. They say, Rabbi, the Jews have sought to stone you. Are you going there again? Of course, we know that because the end of verse of chapter 10, they were trying to stone him, remember? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And it might seem a little confusing. It might seem a bit peculiar, but let me see if we can make some sense out of this. Anyone who has ever got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, and it's dark, and you've done this, right? Stubbed your toe into something. You know the incredible pain you felt, and the reason you felt that was because you tried to walk with your eyes closed through the house, or maybe you stumbled over something, or maybe you stepped on one of the kids' Legos that was left in the floor, or, or something of that nature. The reason is, again, it, it, it's we're trying to walk in the darkness of night. It's a major concern. It's the reason we put nightlights up all over the house or keep a flashlight by the bed. You see, this is specifically Jesus' point. When you walk in the daytime, there is absolutely no danger of stumbling over something because you have the light of the day, the light that governs the day. It's that big ball of burning fire in the in the, in the sky. What do we call it? The sun, right? And we don't have to worry about stumbling over anything at the daytime. You don't need to worry about those things that could harm you. Living life in the will of God is like walking in the daytime. We don't have to worry about stumbling over things in the night. Though there is trouble all around us, there is no need to concern ourselves with that trouble. If we are in His will. Because you'll notice verse 10 is a bit of a warning. He says, if you walk in the night, you stumble because the light is not in Him. Jesus makes a little switch there. He's no longer talking about a light about us that lights our way. Now He's talking about a light that is in us. You see, when we take a step outside of God's will, the light of God is no longer in us. We're no longer walking according to His will, according to His purposes, but instead we are now walking according to whose will and purposes? Mine. Our own. Our own selfish, fleshly purposes. If we walk out of His will, and simply put, that is to knowingly sin against God, denying His authority over our life, there are things that are going to happen. Now, trials are not the interpretation of trouble. Trials are not the interpretation of not being in His will. So what is? Submission to Him and acknowledging that He is in control. Thomas gives us a picture of this in verse 16. Poor old Thomas. You know, we often call him Doubting Thomas, but here he's called Thomas the Twin. I don't know why. But it says, let us also go that we may die with Him. 
He doesn't get exactly that Jesus was about to physically die. He doesn't get that God's will was not for them to die at that particular moment. He doesn't get that God's will is often unknown to us, and that's okay. But here's what Thomas does get. Acceptance of God's will requires our laying down our life to Him. This is the cost that Jesus calls for. If any would come after me, let him lay down his life, pick up his cross, and come after me. In light of trials, walking in his will, or walking in the light, as Jesus puts it here in verse 9, means we will trust in him with our lives, our deaths, and everything in between. And we turn over all we have to him, to his will, to his greater purpose. But what does this require? Number one, it requires that we walk by faith. Walking by faith. As we've already mentioned, part of Jesus' aim in this story about Lazarus' sickness and death was to increase the faith of all those involved and to turn them to Him and to the Father. What is Jesus perhaps doing or allowing to increase your faith right now? What is it that is going on in your life that perhaps He is allowing so that you will walk greater by faith? Is there a particularly troublesome or worrisome moment in your life Perhaps the Lord is trying to get you to walk by faith. Is there some big decision that you need to make? Perhaps the Lord is trying to get you to walk by faith. Is there some action you are ready for the Lord to take? A healing, a job, a move, a financial difficulty or otherwise. And you feel like you are holding this pattern and you're saying, Hurry up, Lord. I'm ready for you to move. Perhaps the Lord is trying to get you to walk by faith or rather wait by faith. Walking by faith can take time, it can take patience, it can take endurance. Most of all, it takes faith. Don't miss the opportunity for God to increase your faith by saying, this is too hard, Lord, I'm going to walk by flesh and I'm going to leave this trial and go find a solution on my own. Second, it requires that we walk by the Spirit. Did you notice... That one is either walking in the night or one is walking in the day. There is no in-between. John doesn't say you can walk in the dusk or you can walk in the twilight. There is only in his will or out of his will. We are either walking in obedience, which is according to the Spirit. You know, often we think walking in obedience requires us to try harder. But what the Bible actually teaches us is that if you want to walk in obedience, then you need to submit to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You need to walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 states this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That scripture in Galatians chapter 5 goes on to say that the Spirit craves the opposite of the flesh, and the flesh the opposite of the Spirit. We cannot be in His will and be in our flesh, but we must be submitted to His leadership with our whole life in order to be in His will. Walk by faith, walk by the Spirit. There are many things calling and craving for our attention, craving our lives, craving our devotion. How we respond to this message and the Scripture will determine what wins our life and our attention, and our devotion. And I would simply ask that during the invitation, during the time where we play that music, that you answer this question, am I fully surrendered to God's will? Am I living a life that says like Thomas, let us go and die with Him? Have you learned to walk by the faith? Learn to walk by the Spirit.
during this time of invitation, I pray that you would seek Him. Seek the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Father, I pray that we would all learn, every single one of us, learn to have a greater walk by faith and a greater walk by your spirit. Lord, you don't want us to walk by the flesh, but instead you want us to learn to trust in you every step of the way. And learn that even though we cannot see the outcome, we can see you, the Savior. You make the outcome. Lord, let us trust in you. It is your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.